Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Uh, I don't want to say it's, it's just you sitting here. We don't have Bill. <laughs> right. Um, well, you know, Stephen Keller here, too. I'm talking to them. Um, but, uh, you know, I went back and checked. This is, I think, like the third time that Bill and I have missed consecutive weeks and we never plan this out. Look, I consider it's just a quirk it, in the schedule. I think it's very considerate. You're not <laughs> both trying to take off at the same time, no. leaving me by myself. Yeah. So I think you guys. I mean, I know you're saying it's accidental, but yeah. I think you should let me believe that it's intentional. That you're like looking out for me, and one of you is always here with me. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think you would flourish on your own. Just, just I for appreciate the record that, there. That uh, I mean, I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know how much of a I don't know how much of a favor we're doing you by with our continued. <laughs> I consider presence. it a big favor. Uh, but yeah, we'll have Bill. Uh, we'll have Bill back next week, right? Yep, he should be. back Yeah, with us Bill next will week. be back next week in his honor. Though we are going to revisit. Uh, the story uh, that 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 involves phantom crew roars. I know it's very close to his heart. He does love, uh, love to talk about that crew detail. Yeah, better known as the Varsity Blues scandal. Better, better known as the uh, Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin uh, lying and bribing to get their kids into yeah. uh, college. And I'm going to get into all of that, but I do want to give the listeners just a little uh, preview of oh, a yeah. great talk we had with one of our own reporters, Emma Cueto. Mm-hmm. She came on the show after writing a really interesting story for our Access to Justice newsletter all about the challenges that Native American women face when they're pursuing cases about things like domestic violence. Yeah, it was good. It was good chat. Uh, she did a great story that really sort of um, like a lot of the stories on the Access to Justice Wire cast a light on something that uh, is very, uh, very easily overlooked. Yeah. Uh, so it was a very good chat with her. So uh, we'll be playing that a little later. But like you said, Alex, we're talking Varsity Blues Talking Varsity again. Blues. And I, we've ta- we've dipped into this well quite a lot because um, it's an interesting it's so legal interesting. story. But we got something like really material to talk about we here. We did. So just a reminder for everyone, Varsity Blues is the one that's the college admissions scandal. Yeah. Um, we got a really good look this past week about how some of the sentences may play out. That's mm-hmm. the bit we're up to now. But just to put everybody back in the frame of mind, Varsity Blues is the one where all the way back in March, um, 50 people, give or take, were charged in this elaborate scandal. Mm-hmm. It's It was about getting their children into elite universities around the country. Right. And like you said, it swept up some pretty well-known people. It was influential parents. We've talked about a Wilkie Farr attorney, right. now an ex-Wilkie Farr attorney, mm-hmm. uh, but actors, Lori Laughlin, Felicity Huffman. So we had some high high name value people there. Yeah, the thing was they, they would either sort of pay people to take their tests for their kids right. or doctor the results of the test. Yeah, and we made a joke about Bill always bringing up the crew thing, and it's because some of them were I don't even know paying. if he always brings it up. I always bring it up, up <laughs> That's to fair. him because You're I know that fair. he rode crew. Uh, but the reason it comes up is because <laughs> some of the parents were paying to have um, pictures taken and things doctored to make it seem as if their kids were uh, yeah. on these teams and that's why they would get admission to get to get to get athletic scholarships yeah. pretending they were on the basketball right. team or the crew right. team it was um it was farcical and strange which is why we love talking about yeah. it yeah and well did you see there's already the the Hallmark movie about it is like already oh, no, like basically course. ready to go i think it's like in a couple of months or something yeah i think it's just called Hallmark college or a lifetime movie lifetime sorry yeah. uh good, feels, thank, feels good, lifetime. good line item correction there yeah uh i think it was just called college admissions scandal or something that makes perfect <laughs> like sense in the most me. baseline okay so anyway sense. okay so um, we, here's why we're back on this beat again yeah felicity huffman was sentenced she got 14 days in jail after she pled guilty mm-hmm. uh yeah so she's four, 14 days in jail i think there was a fine too of some amount 
Um, yeah. And so, like, what? I mean, you know, it was it was it was pretty big big news. Everybody was talking about right. it. Right. And you know? I, I'm not wanting to talk about this to really bring that news to light because I think most people have heard about this. It was covered yeah, pretty yeah. widely. But our own Chris Villani put the development in some really good context, and he wrote a great feature. His feature was called. Prison suddenly seems inevitable for Varsity Blues parents. Uh, let it never be said that Chris is in the art of writing subtle headlines. Uh, prison <laughs> hey, inevitable. Okay, that gets you right to where we need to be. So basically, Chris runs through the interesting points about why Felicity Huffman's 14-day sentence is just a harbinger of things coming for everyone else. Yeah, I mean, this was it was an interesting thing because it was it was a case that was strange and sort of involved a certain type of celebrity that was successful and notable but not like super rich enough apparently to not just like you know, bribe colleges the old-fashioned way and ask right, them like to let their kids... building a library? Yeah, you know, build a build, build an administrative building yeah. with my money or whatever it is. Um, but there were questions about like, you know, sort of what what exactly is the proper recompense here? Right, um, and, and I now, think that's why the eyes were so t- turned to Felicity Huffman, who's one of the first up, essentially. Yeah. Um, and part of why it's not looking great for everyone else to avoid jail time is that she essentially was in a better position than many of the others to avoid prison time and yet still got that two-week sentence. So she had done things like she tearfully pled guilty. She admitted to literally everything the feds said that she did. She she admitted to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that essentially for her was paying a $15,000 bribe to inflate her daughter's SAT score. Mm -hmm. Um, and her actions were more limited than some. The payment was lower. Yeah. The the extent to which um, the her involvement in the scandal was was less than some of the others. Yeah. So that's why it's not looking good for other people. Yeah. Um. And then Chris, I mean, uh, like we said in his piece, he had sort of name checked, uh, or, or rather he or rather he interviewed a number of attorneys who were sort of, sort of taking taking the scope of this. There was some interesting color there. One of them said just a quote that I just love so much that I had to share it with everybody. An attorney that's a uh, white-collar professional that sees a lot of sentences said this, figure out what your size is for your jumpsuit because you're going to jail. It's a question of how long. Okay. Uh, well, Very clear. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so she got 14 days, and then, you know, it seems clear there will be other sort of sentences coming down the pike. Do we have a sense of a, of a scale? Yes. On what, I mean, you, you, you've, we have, we've said, you know, 14 days might be the floor. Right. The question is sort of how... How high might it so go? So I just pulled out a few of those notable ones that we've sort of talked about before, just yeah. to get a sense. And um, federal prosecutors are seeking a range um, of one month to 15 months for 11 other parents that have pled guilty. Mm-hmm. I went back to look at that ex-Wilkie Farr co-chair because we had talked about him specifically on the mm-hmm. pod. It's a little bit of our legal world. I yeah. just wanted to see what, what they were asking for him. He was... Um, His name is Gordon Kaplan, by the way. That's right. Very, yes. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. So Gordon Kaplan, the, the federal prosecutors are trying to get eight months for him. And okay. he's pled guilty. He is one of the ones um, who paid money to have his child's uh, ACT answers corrected. I remember. And that eight months may reflect the fact that he paid $75,000. So a significantly more than than what Felicity Huffman did there. Yeah. And th- this this whole thing has been sort of a... A mishmash of parents sort of either, you know, admitting some degree of culpability and then sort of, you know, painting a certain picture of their circumstances. Do we have reason to think that some of them might get trimmed or more leniency the way? A lot of what Chris's reporting reflected was that there's sort of a standard set of things that could always lower sentences when you're talking about this kind of white collar style crime. Um, And it's things that you would sort of expect. It's, you know, 
people saying that they've uh, admitted their wrongdoing and have atoned for these misdeeds in yeah, the time yeah. since it was discovered. Or they can say they have special circumstances. So that would yeah. be stuff like anybody who might be very ill or maybe the sole caregiver for a young child, things like that that mm-hmm. could come up in some of these cases. But that's about it in yeah. terms of mitigating circumstances. Well, I know that there were there's a number of defendants, even maybe some of the more notable ones who haven't who haven't been as uh, what am I trying to say? Who haven't been as open or, 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 or have not admitted to much of anything. Right, yeah. Um, about it in terms of misconduct or misdeeds here. Yeah, the one that, of course, gets the most press about that is Lori Laughlin and her husband. He's the designer that's uh, Massimo, Massimo Genuli. Exactly. The, yeah. the, Thank you for the, pronouncing that for me. The yeah. target clothing impresario. That's right. So the two of them are among the group that are still fighting the charges. So mm-hmm. they have not pled guilty. Yeah, they've, they've dug in from what I've seen. Yeah, um, Attorneys that Chris spoke to said that even though they haven't pled guilty, so they're sort of like a different bucket of people right now in terms Mm -hmm. of where they are in the proceedings, this could still spell trouble for someone like Lori Laughlin because exactly because she hasn't admitted her guilt. So she, if she is found guilty later on, um, could serve even more jail time because often you get a lesser sentence because you've fessed up to what you did. And, And in addition to that, they paid a lot. That couple paid a lot more money than Felicity Huffman did. They are actually the ones that uh, faked crew credentials. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> so right. That's, yeah, that's yeah. where this all comes back around. Um, but we're going to have to see how things play out for Laughlin and the other parents who haven't pled guilty because, you know, it's we could still have a lot of court proceedings between now and the ultimate answer to what happens to them. It just it it all could have been avoided if you just let your stupid kid take the stupid test. I don't know what to say. Uh, I feel like that's how we end all of these segments about Varsity Blues. So why change things up now? Yeah, I mean Varsity Blues has become a fixture uh, on the show, and we'll check back in as 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 needed. Another fixture uh, that we talk about on the show a lot, sort of, is the um, the sort of creeping. I don't know if we'd say creeping influence or creeping presence of the arbitration system and the concerns that people have when the when arbitration is used sort of as a used to displace or replace normal, you know, courtroom litigation yeah. type stuff. Um, and we have a we're going to talk about that again today um, in a little bit of a different context than we have before. Uh, these concerns over arbitration surfaced again uh, this month uh, and then last week specifically. Uh, as the Department of Justice decided for the first time ever to use arbitration um, in one of its uh, antitrust challenges of a of a merger it is suing to block. This is just setting off all of my like, ooh, fun stuff to talk about. I know it sounds maybe not that to other people, but I do like talking about this arbitration issue because it is so ubiquitous now. Yeah. It comes up so much. And I was uh, in charge of our competition newswire for a long time here yes. at Law 360. So we've hit up a couple of good things. I've uh, I've I've written for that wire a couple times. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, a few know. times. So, no big deal. So since you have some experience there, tell yeah. us what happened in this instance. Uh, I'm hardly an expert, and we'll try and keep we'll try and keep you out of the antitrust weeds too much here and into the the, the sort of bigger picture bigger picture implications. But just as a way of situating here. Um, Earlier this month, DOJ sued to block a merger between two aluminum companies. Those companies are called Novellus and Alaris. And they basically said, like, it followed the the strokes of basically any kind of antitrust, um, you know, lawsuit that was like, when these two companies tie up, they're going to reduce competition in the market, specifically for, uh, they, they supply aluminum to car makers. So this is the stuff that cars are made out of. Yep. If the aluminum is more expensive, the cars will be more expensive. This is bad for consumers, right? These are the general allegations. Um, that's pretty, like I say, that's pretty standard issue. But 
um, there was uh, the DOJ sort of broke new ground when it said it would take a key portion of this suit that it was filing and move it out of the courtroom but into arbitration. Um, the thing that they are moving to uh, to arbitration is the question of, uh, which is a key question in antitrust cases, which is determining the particular market right. um, and why that is important. That is like sort of the thrust of all antitrust concerns in that you have to determine the actual market that may or may not be distorted by a given merger. So the two companies here, Novellus and Alaris, they say, yeah, we provide materials that people use to make cars. We're aluminum companies. We're also competing with steel companies. So this is actually a much larger market. Our little tie-up here isn't going to have the, the the problems that you think it is, government. The government says, listen, you're both competing in the aluminum space. Like, you're both trying to sell aluminum at competitive rates. This might give you less of incentive to do that. So in any case... That question now of what the market is, where, where these two companies are operating, that is a very important question, um, and that is one, and, th- and that is the that is the question that has now been moved not to a courtroom but to arbitration. So the first thing is, if I were going to name two aluminum companies, I definitely would go with Alaris and Novellus. Yeah, just, that feels right, right. Yes, for that <laughs> segment. Yes, um, but. Why is it moving to arbitration? Like, why did they not want to just leave it with a judge? Because this is unusual. Yes, it's un- I mean, they've literally never done this before, um, even though the DOJ has had the authority to do this since 1996. There was a law that was passed that, like I say, allowed portions of antitrust challenges to be moved to arbitration. Um, it has never been invoked until now. And last week, the, uh, the DOJ made a court filing uh, um, that sort of outlined its plans for this. And the antitrust chief, uh, who's named uh, Makan Del Rahim, uh, basically said, um, uh, in, in addition to outlining that they were doing it now, he signaled that they might do it more. This was his quote. This new process could prove to be a model for future enforcement actions, where appropriate to bring greater certainty for merging parties and to preserve taxpayer resources while staying true to our enforcement mission. So as is he basically just saying, like, arbitration's faster, you guys, as he's saying there. Yeah. I mean, you have to remember this is, um, you know, he's he's these are government attorneys who are sort of acting at the public's behest or public interest, if you will. And so, you know, he's saying, you know, Arbitration is quicker. It's cheaper. Uh, you can get these cases before sort of subject matter experts that are that know more about antitrust than uh, federal judges might. You know, the, the, the arbitrators can be, you know, attorneys or academics or uh, people who work specifically in this area. And he thinks it's just a way to make the process run a little more smoothly and a little more efficiently. I mean, is that is that right? I mean, I know that people think, oh, yeah, we don't want to spend a lot of money in court, but... If you're protecting the public interest, isn't there some benefit to going the slow and steady? To route? be more thorough, yeah. yes, um, yeah. That's and that's what you've heard from a lot of people today. Matt Perlman uh, wrote a great story for us where he was talking to some antitrust uh, attorneys who's there. There were eyebrows raised uh, when yeah. this happened. It's not that they think that this aluminum company tie-up is some kind of potential game changer, but the idea that they would do it at all. So, like when we talk about the challenges faced with arbitration in other contexts. We've done it talking about like, you know, employers basically coercing their employees yes. into arbitration and not into a courtroom. Or a giant corporation, you know, shuffling its customers into arbitration if they have some kind of dispute. There you have the issue of like a power disparity, which we've right. talked about before, right? Like it's 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 
it, it uh, you know, arbitration doesn't level out, you know, the power disparity in the same way that a courtroom does. It's not exactly the case here. Like you are, you have the government and you have two companies that, it, that it's investigating that have actively jointly agreed to do this. So it's not a question of a power imbalance, but it is like you say, you know, antitrust enforcement is about, it like has implications in certain cases for, you know, thousands, if not millions yeah. of people, the products we buy and the services that we take in, you know, we, you know, we have an interest in keeping those prices as low as possible and things like that. And it's just a, it's an open question of whether or not, you know, just doing something quickly and on the cheap is, you know, the best course of action to resolve um, a question like that. So um, the DOJ has said sort of uh, it, it will only consider this option in certain scenarios um, where, you know, it, it is, you know, they, they are balancing out the efficiency arguments with the public interest arguments. Um, but people are nevertheless uh sort of seeing this as very significant. You know, in arbitration, you don't get things like, um, you know, established precedent of sure. some novel antitrust question or some legal theory. These things develop sort of in the light of day in a courtroom, right. not in some, you know, arbitration conference room somewhere. So we'll see how it goes. Um, like I say, they've just announced that they will do this. They might settle the whole thing before it even gets to that stage. We'll see. Um, but the fact that they've gone down this road for the first time ever, like I say, is uh, certainly, uh, certainly notable. Violence against Native American women in the United States is at epidemic levels, and efforts to hold perpetrators accountable in court can be complicated by a maze of jurisdictional issues. Today we're talking with Emma Cueto, who wrote about the problem for an edition of Law 360's Access to Justice newsletter. In fact, the entire newsletter was devoted to issues faced by Native Americans in the justice system. Welcome to the show, Emma. Hi, happy to be here. I am very interested in this story that you wrote because it's something I didn't know a ton about. But before we get into exactly why it's really hard in the legal system for Native American victims, can you sort of explain the broader scope of this problem and the kinds of crimes they're facing? Yeah, so it's it's a really big problem. Um, epidemic is the term that people use to talk about it. And, you know, for context, uh, we're talking specifically about crimes in what's referred to as Indian country, mm -hmm. which is uh, lands that are under tribal jurisdiction. It's home to about one million people. And for Native American women in particular, the stats are really uh, striking. About 55 percent of Native women have uh, experienced domestic violence. That's in comparison to about 35 percent of women in the general population. So it's a big gap. And then when you're looking at sexual violence, it's 56% of Native women as opposed to 18% for the general population. And the stats on stalking, uh, Native women are actually three times more likely to have experienced stalking. Um, and so these are really big issues, and tribes are really constrained in their ability to address these problems by the legal framework in place. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry to, to interrupt you, but we yeah. wanted to talk about that. I mean, you've made clear, I mean, this you can open up the newspaper sort of any day and see you know stories about how women are being failed by the justice system. Right. This is sort of the basis of the whole Me Too movement. But as you've said, it's particularly a problem for Native women. Um, and in and in addition to the, the, the sheer scope of the problem as it applies to them, your story does a really interesting job about talking about exactly why uh, the justice system 
is sort of inadequately equipped to address this specific problem. Why is that? Yeah, so it it really goes back to, I think, the way in which uh, the system was constructed. It really is kind of a patchwork system. And it's based on a lot of different Supreme Court precedents, some of them going back, you know, to like the 19th century, um, and different acts of Congress, uh, as well as just the fact that, you know, Native Americans have a unique relationship with the federal government, you know, tribes are legally distinct from other types of jurisdictions. You can easily see how this is going to start to get really complicated. Yes. Um, And I also think lawyers probably are so used to like, oh, it's a patchwork of stuff that's not going to be good or clear. Um, But one thing that I didn't even understand is that some of the jurisdiction is based on who the perpetrator is that they're um, going after for prosecution. So can you just give us a quick like two second explainer of how that works? Like who gets to follow um, and investigate the crimes? Yeah. So in general, um, Native perpetrators fall under the jurisdiction of the tribe. So if a tribal member commits a crime on a reservation, that's something that tribal law enforcement and tribal courts uh, would generally handle. If a non-tribal member commits a crime on a reservation, on the other hand, um, if the non-tribal member commits a crime against another non-tribal member, that's usually state jurisdiction. Um, And if the non-tribal member commits a crime against a tribal member, that's usually federal jurisdiction. Um, There are, however, exceptions to all of this based on the type of crime that you're talking about and how serious it is. And so... But already it just really paints that portrait of what you were saying earlier, that it gets complicated really fast and you can see how um, different uh, groups have to come together, different law enforcement groups to figure out who even takes point. Exactly. And that seems like it would get messy really fast. Yeah. I mean, it's not really something that, you know, your average local police force uh, usually has to deal with. Um, You know, most county sheriffs don't have to worry about, you know, Supreme Court precedent from the 1970s. Yeah, Yeah, you don't have to worry about stepping on some other agency's toes with regard to, like, what is that sort of just an interpersonal conflict if somebody Mm -hmm. is reporting a domestic violence incident or something like that. So just as a general idea, let's pick one of those scenarios and sort of talk about what would maybe happen next. Let's say a native woman is the victim of domestic violence by a non-native man. What happens when she calls the cops? Yeah. So, um, and I should also point out, that's a really common scenario. Um, Stats also suggest that unlike most groups, native women are actually potentially more likely to be victims of non-native perpetrators, which is usually not the case. Most, you know, crime is of people of your same, you know, race or nationality. Uh So in that scenario, um, which does happen a lot, uh, you would call the police um, and the first responders would usually be tribal law enforcement um, because, you know, you're on the reservation. That's who initially responds. Your next step would usually be to try and get a protective order, Mm -hmm. a Tribal court can issue you a protective order, but it usually, depending on where you are, uh, is only going to apply to the reservation. So if you, say, work off of the reservation in the next town over, Mm -hmm. um, you would have to try and get that registered with the state or with the county, um, which can be its own problem. You're not jumping through a whole other hoop there. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I write about – there was an example in California, actually – where a tribal court judge went herself to a sheriff's substation just off the reservation to try and, you know, register a protective order. 
Um, and, you know, she she was the tribal court judge uh, and she walked into the station and she talked to the deputy and the deputy refused to enter the order because uh, he said that he didn't know if it was a valid order or not. Um, you know, he, <laughs> this is he, when, when, when the judge is bringing it in person. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, and he, he, you know, he believed her when she said who she was, you yeah. know, like she had an ID. He knew who she was, but she, he refused to recognize the order until she got a state court judge that she knew to get on the phone and to instruct them to. I mean, I know we use the term access to justice a lot because we have a newsletter all about that, sure. but this really is an access problem where even the judge who's should probably get all the deference in the world, a judge coming in mm-hmm. to try to do something like this, and even the judge has trouble getting it to go through smoothly. So it it's pretty bleak out there, I would imagine. Yeah, it is. And it, it gets even more kind of bleak when you talk about prosecution. Um, oh, yeah. Because, you know, tribal courts don't really have jurisdiction over almost any crimes committed by non-tribal members. Right. Um, you have to get, uh, you know, in, in the event that a non-tribal member commits a crime against a tribal member, that's something that's a federal crime. So the mm-hmm. FBI is the one who's supposed to investigate, and it's supposed to be tried in a federal courthouse, which, uh, you know, yeah, creates its own problems. Yeah. Um, well, what do, 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 do the people you talk to have any, you know, sort of general comment about the I don't know if we would say the either the the aggressiveness or the competency of the FBI to prosecute crimes like that. So there's I think uh, well the FBI it, investigating yeah. and then federal prosecution thereof. Yeah, there's I think a perception among a lot of people that these are not high priority crimes. Okay, um, you know you think about like your average U.S. attorney didn't really become a U.S. attorney because they wanted to prosecute run-of-the-mill domestic violence cases. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's not usually something that is on their radar. But if you're, you know, a U.S. attorney in a state like, say, South Dakota, which has a very large Native population, um, you know, that's something that's going to come through the office a lot. And there is a perception uh, among a lot of people that, you know, these are people who are not part of the community and that their community is not a priority um, for law enforcement or for uh, federal prosecutors. To say nothing of the geographic sort of challenges, these are vast territories and states that we're talking about with like sort of one like federal outpost. I'm sure that like presents its own. Oh, yeah. And uh, my colleague, Cara Bayless, uh, she wrote a story actually specifically looking at that, which also runs in this issue. Um, and did a really good job at, at looking at the distance that people have to travel, both people who have been, you know, accused of crimes, people mm-hmm. who are, you know, victims of crimes, um, you know, having to travel in some cases, you know, two, three, four hours in just one direction yeah. in order to, you know, talk to their attorneys or to appear in court. And, you know, sometimes having to travel through, you know, really bleak weather or, you know, dangerous conditions um, and things that for most people would be handled by, you know, a a state prosecutor in a local courthouse in their county, Mm -hmm. um, you know, having to travel hundreds of miles. Yeah. We're not the first people to have thought of this problem. And even Congress has, in some ways, tried to address that. And you talked about that a bit in your story with the intersection between this issue and the Violence Against Women Act. How does that work and has it helped so far? Yeah. So in 2013, uh, the Violence Against Women Act was reauthorized and it included a provision that uh, really for the very first time since the Supreme Court case that really shut down tribal prosecutions of non-tribal members, um, it allowed tribes to, for the first time, prosecute non-tribal members 
uh, in this case, specifically and only for domestic violence. Yeah. Okay. Um, in order to get that special jurisdiction, tribes have to apply for it. They have to prove certain things, uh, you know, for example, that their court system uh, honors constitutional protections uh, for defendants and that they have essentially a court system that looks very much like the kind of Western United States court mm-hmm. system. Okay. And it's been in the tribes that have been able to implement it, it's been very successful. Um, I think there are... 18 tribes that currently have special jurisdiction, and they've prosecuted over 300 people. Um, Most of those have resulted in convictions. Um, I think about half have resulted in prison time, although tribes seem to be uh, kind of a lot more willing than I think courts in general to recommend people to diversion programs or, you know, rehabilitation of some sort. Um, And it's been, I think, a, a big positive impact, at least according to the people that I've talked to, just in terms of people being willing to come forward. Um, well, you said, there, so there have been 18 tribes that have sort of successfully, you know, you know, gotten their way into this sort of new prosecutorial authority or whatever. Um, but the, uh, I mean, do, do you have a sense of scope in terms of how many are still, uh, like, have, have had trouble sort of getting under that umbrella? or? So it's not really clear, or at least I wasn't able to uh, find clear numbers on how many people have applied yeah. uh, for special jurisdiction. I will say that there are over 500 federally recognized tribes Yeah, that's kind of what US. I was, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, so this yeah. is a really small It is. Amount. It's a really small amount. Um, and it's also worth noting that under the 2013 reauthorization, uh, tribes in Alaska, and there are over 200 federally recognized tribes in Alaska, are specifically not allowed to uh, oh. request special <laughs> jurisdiction. And that has to do with a whole other uh, complicated uh, dimension of law in this area having to do with the way in which those tribes uh, are recognized and their legal authority. So we're leaving a lot of tribes out yes. here. Um, but that brings us to present day and maybe a little bit of a look ahead. Are there other things dealing with the Violence Against Women Act and and the next reauthorization that could dig further uh, into solving this problem? Yeah, the uh, 2019 VAWA reauthorization that was passed in the House, um, people actually are uh, really excited about, I think, um, if if it's able to get through the Senate. Um, for tribes, it would expand the um, the number of crimes that tribes are able to prosecute. Mm. Currently, tribes are only able to prosecute domestic violence. Um, So you're actually, you know, you're missing things like sexual assault, things like rape. You're missing violence against children. Um, Mm. Stalking is not included. You know, a lot of things that are big problems for women on reservations and that really do go along with domestic violence. Um, So the uh, VAWA 2019 bill would expand uh, that to include things like sexual violence, uh, crimes against children. Um, And it would also create a pilot program for five different tribes in Alaska uh, to do something similar, which I think uh, advocates there really uh, are hoping for. um, Because, you know, a lot of, I think, women in Alaska really pushed hard in 2013 to try and get those, uh, that special jurisdiction in effect. Mm-hmm. And then when they found out that it wouldn't actually benefit them, I think that was was really difficult for a lot of people. So as a general matter, just sort of if, if we could, you know, sort of 
state plainly, like sort of what this what the legal status is of you know violence against women um, on reservations as we stand now and as it may change. I mean, is there? I mean, you you talk to the people about this. I mean, are people generally optimistic? And I know the VAWA reauthorization always gets turned into like a political football for something else. But I mean, what is the what's the sort of read on 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 where we go from here? So I think uh, people really are hoping that the tribal uh, portions of the 2019 bill remain intact. Mm-hmm. Um, people also come up with all kinds of, you know, creative workarounds. Like, for example, um, there are places where tribal law enforcement and uh, state law enforcement do what's called cross-deputization, mm-hmm. which is basically they deputize each other's uh, oh. agents uh, so that... You, like, mutually recognize your investigative authority and, like, competency, exactly. basically? Okay. Yeah, so, and, and that allows, uh, you know, law enforcement, at least, to uh, to handle, you know, any kind of case, really. Um, and beyond even just like violence against women, things like pulling over drunk drivers or, you know, basic Mm -hmm. public safety. Um, And it's not a substitute for, you know, being able to prosecute, but it can uh, do a lot in terms of just basic keeping people safe. And there's also, I think, though, a general sense that really the only fix ultimately for this issue is just to restore tribes' ability to prosecute, which Mm -hmm. is something that historically tribes were able to do until about the mid-20th century. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, up until that point, tribes were able to charge anyone who committed a crime on a reservation in tribal court in the same way that, you know, if you commit a crime in New York City, it doesn't matter if you're a, you know, legal resident of New Jersey, you can still be charged in a New York court. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of people, I think, who feel that the only ultimate policy fix would be a a full reversal of that uh, Supreme Court case. Emma, this has been so interesting to learn about. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. in our show with something offbeat and Elon Musk is what we're talking about today. Yeah, the uh, the legal travails of the Tesla CEO Elon Musk who I feel like he could be offbeat almost any given week. Well, he's a he's an he's an interesting character. Um just generally. Uh you know, I I think I remember he he got in trouble with the SEC cuz he talked about he he tweeted about taking Tesla public, yep. which you're not supposed to do before you actually do that, like in a filing and stuff like that. Um, anyway, this is a much more interesting thing than some boring SEC uh, violation. Um, uh, Musk is currently in the midst of a defamation lawsuit against um, the guy uh, who, uh, a man who we have termed in our coverage as the heroic spelunker <laughs> who led the rescue of a uh, of a uh, Thai uh, boys soccer team from a cave last year. Before we this? even go forward with why there's a defamation case between those two people, uh, Alex, will you ever do something good enough to have a moniker like that in the press? Hero- like heroic spelunker. Yeah, we so yeah good. we have hero or heroic spelunker in our coverage, which is just like amazing. Um, anyway, so. Uh, the guy, the guy who sued Musk, is named um, Vernon Unsworth, and him and Musk got into it uh, last summer, summer 2018. Um, after Unsworth was part of the team that led the rescue of this uh, soccer team that was yeah, stuck, the whole world was that was like it was that. submerged in a cave, um, and it was like a really, I mean, it was. It was life and death there for a little bit, but once, once, um, and we're we're going to talk about this in a jokey way, but once you know 
the rescue operation was completed, um, him and Musk started getting into this sort of tug of war on Twitter about Musk had at one point during the process like sort of made an overture to uh, put on loan one of these like underground uh, or one of these like cutting edge submarines to help with the the rescue effort. Yeah, um, I remember this happening because at that point he was like, we don't need this. And Unsworth accused him. maniac. Like, he accused him of grandstanding. Yeah. It's like, this is a serious thing and you're trying to just kind of insert yourself into it. And then at one point on Twitter, uh, Musk called Unsworth pedo guy he called him a pedo guy well i see where the defamation comes and uh unsworth who is a fairly like sort of anonymous person at this point uh was like he he, he sued him for defamation in california state court uh or california federal court rather and that's where we are today um and it's been very interesting like a lot of defamation cases i was i was going through the filings today and you know it's all the normal stuff of like hey i was I was joking around and like it's Twitter where people are popping off all the time. Yeah, when you mentioned that you wanted to talk about this one, I did read some coverage of it and it seems like that's Musk's big defense that like, well, well, in South Africa, that's just a thing we call people. Well, no, I I mean, that's kind of what, I mean, that's what kind of came to light this week, but it was very interesting that like his initial like sort of defenses against the thing was like, I'm cl- I'm either clearly joking yeah. or he like then there's like this really interesting legal question about whether or not Unsworth is a public person in the context of which the, does make a difference because the standard it's a higher is standard higher yeah you got to definitely like malice or uh, absolute malice or whatever the, yeah. the standard is anyway so but this this week uh, there was sort of a there was an interesting uh, through line that emerged in a new filing from Musk on Monday. Um, where instead of saying, oh, I was kidding or, uh, you know, I, this is obviously a joke and I don't actually mean to accuse him of being a pedophile, Musk instead pleaded ignorance about the term pedo guy. Uh, this is just something, this is just something from the filings. Uh, so Musk said pedo guy, pedo guy was quote, a common insult used in South Africa when I was growing up. Uh, he said the expression was quote, it was synonymous with creepy old man. And used to insult someone's person, uh, like like a person's appearance and their demeanor. Um, here's a, here's a quote from the thing. He said, "I did not intend to accuse Mr. Unsworth of engaging in acts of pedophilia." Uh, in response to his insults in the CNN interview, I was I meant to insult him back by expressing my opinion that he seemed like a creepy old man. Um, that, yeah, that doesn't seem like that's going to hold up. I, I don't mean, know. I creepy mean, creepy old man. It just uh, <laughs> okay. It's such a specific. Uh, okay. uh, it's such a specific uh, th- thing to try and and <laughs> yeah. hide behind here. It was like, oh, I mean, I heard someone say "pedo guy" once when I was a kid in South Africa, and that's just <laughs> what I call people now when they've upset me. I just, oh, I mean, how many times do we have to be on this podcast saying <laughs> just don't don't tweet? Yeah, just I know. Well, yeah, that. Tweet. I mean, that's that's a tautology at this point. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, uh, it's it's an interesting case. We'll see how it goes. It is funny to me. I was like I said, I was going through the filings in the margins of the filings beyond the question of whether or not he defamed him by calling yeah. him pedo guy. They're also still like uh, accusing each other of not actually helping out in the rescue effort right. that much. It's they're, like really they're funny. Fundamental like, dispute you know, I still, I still, I was doing a lot of help. I was on the site uh, and stuff like that. So yeah, it's just kind of funny that it grew out of this pretty serious thing, and now here we are litigating um, the 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 sort of reasonable level of knowledge someone should have about the term pedo guy. So oh, stay tuned to that don't one. Don't tweet Elon Musk. Yeah, or anyone. <laughs> Good advice and a good way to end the show. Thanks for being with me, Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Emma Cueto, and our contributing reporters this week, Chris Villani, Matthew Perlman, and Kara Bayless. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glassman. 
Our show's available on every major podcast platform, so please download us, subscribe to us, and leave us a written review. It helps other people find the show. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've talked about, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and join us again next week.